Chapter One of Book One of Toilers of the Sea, Part One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alison Valdis. Toilers of the Sea, Part One. Sieur Clubin by Victor Hugo. Translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book One The History of a Bad Reputation. Chapter One A Word Written on a White Page. Christmas Day, in the year 1820, was somewhat remarkable in the island of Guernsey. Snow fell on that day. In the Channel Islands a frosty winter is uncommon, and a fall of snow is an event. On that Christmas morning the road which skirts the seashore from St. Peter's Port to the Vale was clothed in white. From midnight till the break of day the snow had been falling. Towards nine o'clock, a little after the rising of the wintry sun, as it was too early yet for the Church of England folks to go to St. Samson's, or for the Wesleyans to repair to Elder Chapel, the road was almost deserted. Throughout that portion of the highway which separates the first from the second tower, only three foot passengers could be seen. These were a child, a man, and a woman. Walking at a distance from each other, these wayfarers had no visible connection. The child, a boy of about eight years old, had stopped and was looking curiously at the wintry scene. The man walked behind the woman at a distance of about a hundred paces. Like her, he was coming from the direction of the church of St. Samson. The appearance of the man, who was still young, was something between that of a workman and a sailor. He wore his working-day clothes, a kind of Guernsey shirt of coarse brown stuff and trousers partly concealed by top hall and leggings, costume which seemed to indicate that, notwithstanding the holy day, he was going to no place of worship. His heavy shoes of rough leather, with their soles covered with large nails, left upon the snow as he walked, a print more like that of a prison lock than the foot of a man. The woman, on the contrary, was evidently dressed for church. She wore a large mantle of black silk, wadded, under which she had coquettishly adjusted a dress of Irish poplin, trimmed alternately with white and pink, but for her red stockings she might have been taken for a Parisian. She walked on with a light and free step, so little suggestive of the burden of life, that it might easily be seen that she was young. Her movements possessed that subtle grace which indicates the most delicate of all transitions, that soft intermingling, as it were, of two twilights, the passage from the condition of a child to that of womanhood, the man seemed to take no heed of her. Suddenly, near a group of oaks at the corner of a field, and at the spot called the Basses Maison, she turned, and the movement seemed to attract the attention of the man. She stopped, seemed to reflect a moment, then stooped, and the man fancied that he could discern that she was tracing with her finger some letters in the snow. Then she rose again, went on her way at a quicker pace, turned once more, this time smiling, and disappeared to the left of the roadway, by the footpath under the hedges which leads to the ivy castle. 
When she had turned for the second time, the man had recognized her as Derruchette, a charming girl of that neighborhood. The man felt no need of quickening his pace, and some minutes later he found himself near the group of oaks. Already he had ceased to think of the vanished Derruchette, and if, at that moment, a porpoise had appeared above the water, or a robin had caught his eye in the hedges, it is probable that he would have passed on his way. But it happened that his eyes were fixed upon the ground, and his gaze fell mechanically upon the spot where the girl had stopped. Two little footprints were there plainly visible, and beside them he read this word, evidently written by her in the snow. Gilead. It was his own name. He lingered for a while, motionless, looking at the letters, the little footprints in the snow, and then walked on, evidently in a thoughtful mood. Chapter 2 The Bou de la Rue Gilead lived in the parish of St. Samson. He was not liked by his neighbours, and there were reasons for that fact. To begin with, he lived in a queer kind of haunted dwelling. In the islands of Jersey and Guernsey, sometimes in the country, but often in streets with many inhabitants, you will come upon a house the entrance to which is completely barricaded. Holly bushes obstruct the doorway, hideous boards with nails conceal the windows below, while the casements of the upper stories are neither closed nor open, for all the window frames are barred, but the glass is broken. If there is a little yard, grass grows between its stones, and the parapet of its wall is crumbling away. If there is a garden, it is choked with nettles, brambles, and hemlock, and strange insects abound in it. The chimneys are cracked, the roof is falling in. So much as can be seen from without of the rooms presents a dismantled appearance. The woodwork is rotten, the stone mildewed. The paper of the walls has dropped away and hangs loose until it presents a history of the bygone fashions of paper hangings, the scrawling patterns of the time of the empire, the crescent-shaped draperies of the directory, the balustrades and pillars of the days of Louis the Sixteenth. The thick draperies of cobwebs filled with flies indicate the quiet reign long enjoyed by innumerable spiders. Sometimes a broken jug may be noticed on a shelf. Such houses are considered to be haunted. Satan is popularly believed to visit them by night. Houses are like the human beings who inhabit them. They become to their former selves what the corpse is to the living body. A superstitious belief among the people is sufficient to reduce them to this state of death. Then their aspect is terrible. These ghostly houses are common in the Channel Islands. The rural and maritime populations are easily moved with notions of the active agency of the powers of evil. Among the Channel Isles and on the neighbouring coast of France, the ideas of the people on this subject are deeply rooted. In their view, Beelzebub has his ministers in all parts of the earth. It is certain that Belfagor is the ambassador from the infernal regions in France, Hutgin in Italy, Belial in Turkey, Thamuz in Spain, Martinet in Switzerland, and Mammon in England. Satan is an emperor just like any other, a sort of Satan's Caesar. His establishment is well organized. Dagon is Grand Almoner, Succor Benoth, chief of the eunuchs, Asmodeus, banker at the gaming table, Cobol, manager of the theatre, and Verdelet, grand master of the ceremonies. Nibus is the court fool. Wirus, a savant, 
a good strigologue, and a man of much learning in demonology, calls Nibus the great parodist. The Norman fishermen who frequent the channel have many precautions to take at sea by reason of the illusions with which Satan environs them. It has long been an article of popular faith that St. Maclure inhabited the great square rock called Ortach, in the sea between Origny and the Casquettes, and many old sailors used to declare that they had often seen him there, seated and reading in a book. Accordingly the sailors, as they passed, were in the habit of kneeling many times before the Ortach rock, until the day when the fable was destroyed and the truth took its place. For it has been discovered, and is now well established, that the lonely inhabitant of the rock is not a saint, but a devil. This evil spirit, whose name is Jochmus, has the impudence to pass himself off for many centuries as St. Maclough. Even the church herself is not proof against snares of this kind. The demons Raguhel, Oribel, and Tobiel were regarded as saints until the year 745, when Pope Zachary, having at length exposed them, turned them out of saintly company. This sort of weeding of the saintly calendar is certainly very useful, but it can only be practised by very accomplished judges of devils and their ways. The old inhabitants of these parts relate, though all this refers to bygone times, that the Catholic population of the Norman archipelago was once, though quite involuntarily, even in more intimate correspondence with the powers of darkness than the Huguenots themselves. How this happened, however, we do not pretend to say, but it is certain that the people suffered considerable annoyance from this cause. It appears that Satan had taken a fancy to the Catholics, and sought their company a good deal, a circumstance which has given rise to the belief that the devil is more Catholic than Protestant. One of his most insufferable familiarities consisted in paying nocturnal visits to married Catholics in bed, just at the moment when the husband had fallen fast asleep and the wife had begun to doze, a fruitful source of domestic trouble. Patulette was of opinion that a faithful biography of Voltaire ought not to be without some allusion to this practice of the evil one. The truth of all this is perfectly well known, and described in the forms of excommunication in the rubric De Erroribus Nocturnis et De Semine Diabolorum. The practice was raging particularly at St. Helier's towards the end of the last century, probably as a punishment for the revolution, for the evil consequences of revolutionary excesses are incalculable. However this may have been, it is certain that this possibility of a visit from the demon at night, when it is impossible to see distinctly, or even in slumber, caused much embarrassment among orthodox dames. The idea of giving to the world a Voltaire was by no means a pleasant one. One of these, in some anxiety, consulted her confessor on this extremely difficult subject, and the best mode for timely discovery of the cheat. The confessor replied, in order to be sure that it is your husband by your side and not a demon, place your hand upon his head. If you find horns, you may be sure there is something wrong. But this test was far from satisfactory to the worthy dame. Gilead's house had been haunted, but it was no longer in that condition. It was for that reason, however, only regarded with more suspicion. No one learned in demonology can be unaware of the fact that, when a sorcerer has installed himself in a haunted dwelling, the devil considers the house sufficiently occupied, and is polite enough to abstain from visiting there unless called in, like the doctor, on some special occasion. This house was known by the name of the Bou de la Rue. 
It was situated at the extremity of a little promontory, rather of rock than of land, forming a small harbourage apart in the creek of Homet Paradis. The water at this spot is deep. The house stood quite alone upon the point, almost separated from the island, and with just sufficient ground about it for a small garden, which was sometimes inundated by the high tides. Between the port of St. Samson and the creek of Haumet Paradis rises a steep hill, surmounted by the block of towers covered with ivy, and known as Vale Castle, or the Chateau de la Chance, so that at St. Samson the Bout de la Rue was shut out from sight. Nothing is commoner than sorcerers in Guernsey. They exercise their profession in certain parishes, in profound indifference to the enlightenment of the nineteenth century. Some of their practices are downright criminal. They set gold boiling, they gather herbs at midnight, they cast sinister looks upon the people's cattle. When the people consult them, they send for bottles containing water of the sick, and they are heard to mutter mysteriously, "'The water has a sad look.' In March 1857, one of them discovered, in water of this kind, seven demons. They are universally feared. Another only lately bewitched a baker, as well as his oven. Another had the diabolical wickedness to wafer and seal up envelopes containing nothing inside. Another went so far as to have on a shelf three bottles labelled B. These monstrous facts are well authenticated. Some of these sorcerers are obliging, and for two or three guineas will take on themselves the complaint from which you are suffering. Then they are seen to roll upon their beds, and to groan with pain, and while they are in these agonies the believer exclaims, "'There! I am well again!' Others cure all kinds of diseases by merely tying a handkerchief round the patient's loins, a remedy so simple that it is astonishing that no one had yet thought of it. In the last century, the Cœur Royale of Guernsey bound such folks upon a heap of faggots and burnt them alive. In these days, it condemns them to eight weeks' imprisonment, four weeks on bread and water, and the remainder of the term in solitary confinement. Amant alterna catenae. The last instance of burning sorcerers in Guernsey took place in 1747. The city authorities devoted one of its squares, the Carrefour de Bordage, to that ceremony. Between 1565 and 1700, eleven sorcerers thus suffered at this spot. As a rule, the criminals made confession of their guilt. Torture was used to assist their confession. The Carrefour du Bordage has indeed rendered many other services to society and religion. It was here that heretics were brought to the stake. Under Queen Mary, among other Huguenots burnt here, were a mother and two daughters. The name of this mother was Perotine Massy. One of the daughters was enceinte, and was delivered of a child even in the midst of the flames. As the old chronicle expresses it, son ventre eclata. The new-born infant rolled out of the fiery furnace. A man named House took it in his arms, but Hellier Gosselin, the bailey, like a good Catholic as he was, sternly commanded the child to be cast again into the fire. Chapter 3. For your wife, when you marry. We must return to Gilead. The country people told how, towards the close of the Great Revolution, a woman, bringing with her a little child, came to live in Guernsey. She was English, or perhaps French. She had a name which the Guernsey pronunciation and the country folks' bad spelling had finally converted into Gilead. 
She lived alone with the child, which, according to some, was a nephew, according to others a son or grandson, according to others, again, a strange child whom she was protecting. She had some means, enough to struggle on in a poor way. She had purchased a small plot of ground in La Sargente, and another at La Roque Crespel, near Roquaine. The house of the Bou de la Rue was haunted at this period. For more than thirty years no one had inhabited it. It was falling into ruins. The garden, so often invaded by the sea, could produce nothing. Besides noises and lights seen there at night-time, the house had this mysterious peculiarity. Any one who should leave there in the evening upon the mantelpiece a ball of worsted, a few needles, and a plate filled with soup, would assuredly find in the morning the soup consumed, the plate empty, and a pair of mittens ready-knitted. The house, demon included, was offered for sale for a few pounds sterling. The stranger woman became the purchaser, evidently tempted by the devil, or by the advantageous bargain. She did more than purchase the house. She took her up her abode there with the child, and from that moment peace reigned within its walls. The Bou de la Rue has found a fit tenant, said the country people. The haunting ceased. There was no longer any light seen there, save that of the tallow candle of the newcomer. Witch's candle is as good as devil's torch. The proverb satisfied the gossips of the neighbourhood. The woman cultivated some acres of land which belonged to her. She had a good cow, of the sort which produces yellow butter. She gathered her white beans, cauliflowers, and golden-drop potatoes. She sowed, like other people, her parsnips by the tunner, her onions by the hundred, and her beans by the denerel. She did not go herself to market, but disposed of her crops through the agency of Gilbert Falliot, at the sign of the Abreveur of St. Samson. The register of Falliot bears, ev bears evidence that Falliot sold for her on one occasion as much as twelve bushels of rare early potatoes. The house had been meanly repaired, but sufficiently to make it habitable. It was only in very bad weather that the raindrops found their way through the ceilings of the rooms. The interior consisted of a ground-floor suite of rooms, and a granary overhead. The ground-floor was divided into three rooms, two for sleeping and one for meals. A ladder connected it with the granary above. The woman attended to the kitchen and taught the child to read. She did not go to church or chapel, which, all things considered, led to the conclusion that she must be French not to go to a place of worship. The circumstance was grave. In short, the newcomers were a puzzle to the neighbourhood. That the woman was French seemed probable. Volcanoes cast forth stones and revolutions men, so families are removed to distant places. Human beings come to pass their lives far from their native homes. Groups of relatives and friends disperse and decay. Strange people fall, as it were, from the clouds, some in Germany, some in England, some in America. The people of the country view them with surprise and curiosity. Whence come these strange faces? Yonder mountain, smoking with revolutionary fires, casts them out. These barren aerolites, these famished and ruined people, these footballs of destiny, are known as refugees, emigres, adventurers, if they sojourn among strangers, they are tolerated. If they depart, there is a feeling of relief. Sometimes these wanderers are harmless, inoffensive people, strangers, at least as regards the women, to the events which have led to their exile, objects of persecution, helpless and astonished at their fate. They take root again somewhere as they can. 
They have done no harm to any one, and scarcely comprehend the destiny that has befallen them. So thus I have seen a poor tuft of grass uprooted and carried away by the explosion of a mine. No great explosion was ever followed by more of such strays than the first French Revolution. The strange woman whom the Guernsey folks called Gilead was possibly one of these human strays. The woman grew older. The child became a youth. They lived alone and avoided by all. But they were sufficient for each other. Louvre et Louveteau, c'est pour les champs. This was another of the generous proverbs which the neighbourhood applied to them. Meanwhile the youth grew to manhood, and then as the old and withered bark falls from the tree, the mother died. She left to her son the little field of Sergente, the small property called Le Roc Crespel, and the house known as the Bout de la Rue, with the addition, as the official inventory said, of one hundred guineas in gold in the pied d'un cauche, that is to say, in the foot of a stocking. The house was already sufficiently furnished with two oaken chests, two beds, six chairs, and a table, besides necessary household utensils. Upon a shelf were some books, and in the corner a trunk, by no means of a mysterious character, which had to be opened for the inventory. This trunk was of drab leather, ornamented with brass nails and little stars of white metal, and it contained a bride's outfit, new and complete, of beautiful Dunkirk linen, camises and petticoats and some silk dresses, with a paper on which was written, in the handwriting of the deceased, "'For your wife, when you marry.' The loss of his mother was a terrible blow for the young man. His disposition had always been unsociable. He became now moody and sullen. The solitude around him was complete. Hitherto it had been mere isolation. Now his life was a blank. While we have only one companion, life is endurable. Left alone, it seems as if it is impossible to struggle on, and we fall back in the race, which is the first sign of despair. As time rolls on, however, we discover that duty is a series of compromises. We contemplate life, regard its end, and submit. But it is a submission which makes the heart bleed. Gilead was young, and his wound healed with time. At that age, sorrows cannot be lasting. His sadness, disappearing by slow degrees, seemed to mingle itself with the scenes around him, to draw him more and more towards the face of nature, and further and further from the need of social converse, and finally to assimilate his spirit more completely to the solitude in which he lived. End of chapter 3